When we have, for example, pain in the body, in your practice or in your attention to it, there comes a point when the mindfulness and the clarity with which you see that discomfort no longer feels like I am suffering. No longer is seen through the lens that says, I am suffering. And there may be clear experience of it as dukkha, but not a personalization of it. And that points a little bit to what you were asking. It's not the full answer, but it points a little bit to the difference between dukkha, suffering, craving, clinging. The kind of the exploded version and the fully developed understanding of craving, clinging, uh, leading to uh, all dukkha, uh, you'd have to go into a description or an explanation of the cycle of dependent origination in which past actions and conditions based on ignorance have brought about the result of this life and everything we experience in it. Ignorance and actions based on the ignorance of our moment-to-moment life now, essentially a form of clinging or aversion, either one, acting from ignorance with clinging or aversion now, creating or resulting in a future tomorrow, next lifetime, however you understand that, where again we have this body, this mind, and its dukkha. So you can see that in that cycle of dependent origination, clinging indeed produces everything we experience in its many forms of dukkha. The understanding of liberation or full enlightenment or however you want to understand that is that in time, as we purify our mind and uh, no longer act from ignorance with clinging or aversion, that in time we no longer are creating the seeds for future results of dukkha. So in time, there would be no, uh, with understanding, there would be no further experience of dukkha. That's the mini version. But you know what I'm pointing at? Do you get a sense? Yes, definitely. So, I mean, Buddha may have had a backache. Right. That's, that's true. That he was suffering in the backache. Yeah. That's right. We, that's, that's an important distinction to, as I mentioned in a talk before, beginning to identify the difference between dukkha, unpleasantness, unsatisfactoriness, for whatever, in whatever way, and dosa or the aversion to it, making it personalized and painful. I am suffering. 
So there's a difference between pain or dukkha and suffering. Because, you know, I mean, we've all had the experience where we sit, we have a little knee ache, and it's terrible. We're really, we're just agonized physically and mentally, just driven to distraction by it. And then there are, we've all had the other times where we can sit with intense experience in the body, and it's okay. But a slight shift of our perspective, and it's extremely painful, and it's not okay. That's the difference between seeing clearly dukkha and not suffering, and not seeing so clearly dukkha and suffering with it. Uh, for a period of time, eight or ten days or so, I took sounds as my primary object. And now, uh, sort of in the back of my mind, there's this agenda, well, maybe I should uh, do some breath work. And uh, <laughs> to try to reestablish that is sort of a problem. And uh, the tension I feel is, uh, am I sitting with an agenda, trying to reestablish that breath? And, and I, otherwise, I, I just sit here without much structure. You know? What is your motivation for reestablishing continuity with the breath? Frankly, I like the concentration. Good. I mean, it seems that the breath is a stepping stone that you use that to develop a certain amount of concentration. Then at that level, you can just sort of open up take everything. Without that level of concentration, for me, I'm just sort of bouncing around. Yeah, great. That's, that's when you're just kind of bouncing around and generally aware and open and, wow, everything's just coming and going great, but you feel like you're not being very crisp, yeah. precise. Yeah. Use a primary noting sequence, if it's the breath or sitting, touching, or in walking, or lifting, moving, placing, to get, to, to bring the mind into a, a more narrow focus, and it will enhance uh, clarity and, and concentration, stillness and concentration. And with that, the mind gets more energized, so that then you can, with that energy, with that maturing of all of those faculties, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and the perception, the recognition of that precise flicker of sensation or movement of mind or whatever, with the enhancement of those, the maturing and the balancing of them, then it's possible to, again, open up to the choiceless flow of phenomena, including sounds, body, mind, and to sustain that clarity, that crispness of recognition for a longer period of time. When it gets kind of waffly, soft, and fuzzy around the edges, use the primary noting sequence again. So it's very have, skillful. I have to have a little agenda there. Sort of pump up that bicep. Uh, agenda, you know, yeah. yeah, we don't have to make it a big agenda. Yeah. It's just a mere movement of, hey, it's a little fuzzy. Why don't I look a little closer? Okay, I got a lot of momentum. Why don't I just open up? Okay. And so you don't have to do 10 days of one to get to 10 days of the next. It's, it can be. A few seconds of this, a few seconds of that, a minute of this, you know, a couple of minutes of that, a whole sitting of this, a whole sitting of that, whatever, whatever is your rhythm of 
and how long you can maintain a really clear, precise crispness in your crispness, crispness, <laughs> crispness in your recognition of presence of mind. The recognition that a certain modicum of uh, concentration, yeah. a certain minimal flow, is required. Yeah. So that, yeah. that sort of justifies it. It happens too that as we now we've been here for more than a month in silence and we all have reached a certain plateau of comfortable mindfulness comfortable concentrated pretty clear flow through the day you know with minor disruptions here and there comfortable at some point that's not satisfying and if you just say, hey, I've been, this is okay. It was okay a week ago. It should be okay now. No. It's like we need to come back, collect again, and say, okay, I've gotten comfortable at this level of awareness and presence and being and, and being with sitting, being with walking, being with general activities, being with all those intentions that we've been noting every day. Remember? <laughs> All it takes is one day of redirecting, remembering and redirecting your attention to note intentions, and you'll see your practice go. One day. But we get comfortable. We forget. Oh, hey, and this is okay. And we kind of drift, and it kind of descends into a kind of a mush. And so we have to remember, oh, primary objects. Hey, right, what were they? You know, oh, intentions, right. Yes, right. That's, and, oh, talking. Oh, well, maybe I have been kind of a little bit loose with the, the notes and the writing and the talking. And yeah, Okay, why don't I just recommit to really being present and remember some of the techniques. Primary objects, don't talk, walk slow, etc., etc., etc. So, time to time to continue. <laughs> oh, one hand left. His his list is up, and I haven't heard from him this morning. So we're assuming. But if you get to his room and he isn't there, then you know. Enjoy your day. Mm-hmm. 
in dealing with strong pain, for example, in the legs or could be in the back, I think one of the things to pay attention to is whether um, the pain goes away when you get up. Right? So assuming that it does, that after you walk a little bit, uh, it eases off, then that's generally an indication that it's not a danger signal in some way. It's just <coughs> painful and uncomfortable. Given that scenario, um, I think it's important that you look at the attitude of the mind you know, as you're being with the pain. To sit there with it, with a tight mind that's just forcing yourself to be there, doesn't seem so productive. So in that situation, you might move or ease position. If there's a real willingness, if there's an interest uh, to really be with it and explore it, then I think working with that sense of resoluteness, okay, let me stay here. Let me die from this pain. I want to understand it. I want to see it. I want to go into it. With that quality of mind, then, um, I think it's important to to actually take time to be with it. Sometimes we need to strengthen that sense of resolve a bit. And you might notice if you're getting into the habit of retreating from pain every time it comes. You know, it might start just giving yourself you know, a break once in a while sitting in a chair at the library. But if you notice that happening more and more frequently, so then it might be that the mind is actually you know, giving into that, that aspect of sloth and torpor that is the retreating mode. You know, so then you might want to stir up the resoluteness or commitment a bit. But occasionally taking some time to ease off seems okay. Although, as I say that, I think of this Ajahn Mun in the forest with the tigers. He probably wouldn't say that. That's <laughs> worked for me, anyway. They're close. The, the, the two, uh, the first two, actually they weren't the idi, the first two idipadas, which means paths to the idis or paths to success. The first one that's translated as zeal is, is more, it's more that sense of steadfastness of purpose. We have a clear sense of what we want to accomplish and our mind is not wavering from that. It's really that holding steadfast to a course of action. We could do that with varying degrees of energy, of effort. Now you could be very steadfast and be meandering along. You could be very steadfast in your goal and really with, with that sense of heroic energy. Uh, so it's a slightly different, the first is steadfastness and the second is the, st 
It's that quality which actually is challenged by difficulty. That's that quality of virya, of effort. You know, so often when we face difficulties in our practice or in our lives, often we're not energized by that. Right? We kind of, oh no, why does this have to be happening? Right? Okay, I'll work with it. You know, kind of a begrudging willingness. But somebody who has that strong quality of virya, that's, the, that's that sense in the mind that's actually challenged. There's a difficulty, oh good. <laughs> you know, so it's a great, it's a very great strength for people either who have it or are motivated to develop it. Okay, in the Buddhist psychology, you know, the Abhidhamma, there's the description of consciousness and all the different mental factors. Intention, the quality of volition or intention, is a common factor, which means that it's actually arising in every single moment of consciousness. It's never absent. For practical purposes, it's not always predominant. It's not the one that always, you know, stands out from all the other factors. Just as an example of that, when you're walking, when you're moving, there's actually a continuing arising and continuing arising of intention which keeps the leg moving. If the intention, if the intention stopped halfway through the step, the leg would stop. But that's not usually predominant unless we really are paying careful attention to that process. Sort of like the example is, you know, if you plug an electric appliance in, into the socket, the volition is like the electric current. You unplug it, the appliance stops. With regard to actually becoming aware of it, often people are looking for something too tangible. And then when they can't find it, well, where is intention? It's not a physical element. Intention is a factor of mind. So you don't particularly want to be looking for some sensation of intention. Although there may be some sensations associated with it that they're not the intention itself. The best way I found of describing that and of experiencing it is to intentionally create a pause, a moment, uh, a split-second pause before a movement and simply realize or recognize the feeling or the sense or the knowing that you're about to do something. And that's all, and that's enough. You know, it's just, it's just creating that moment space 
in which you can recognize that about to, which is not a thought and it's not a sensation, it's just it's a kind of knowing. You follow? So it, it's both simple and subtle, but I think it's not, if you create that moment space to allow that knowing of the about to, I think you'll be able to recognize it quite clearly. Not yet. I hope you could hear that in the back, <laughs> because, um, okay, first to clarify one aspect of what you asked, it's not that the mind-body, in one sense they're one, and in another sense they're not one. So, uh, I think we need to take some care with this. The mind-body are two distinct processes which at the moment are inseparable, but they're distinct. And so it's not just kind of all jumbled up. Uh, for example, at, at the time of death, the body is still there, but presumably there's no consciousness at that time. You know, so, and even one of the one of the insights in practice is learning to distinguish between the mental physical processes. That's, that's actually what the first idi was, that special knowledge of the Dharma, that in every moment of experience, for example, of hearing, the sound, the sound waves are physical phenomena, the ear is physical phenomena, the knowing of it is, is mental, is, is nama, is mind. So those are two different distinct things arising together. 
Okay, so that's an important, you don't want to blur that distinction. The mind is vast. So I think that's, <laughs> that's a true insight. I would be careful about um, you sort of query about the body. Keep in mind that your experience of the body or, or what you're calling the body is a concept. There's actually no body. What, it, what is the actual experience? It's, it's sensations arising and passing. In that sense, putting in a spatial framework almost doesn't make sense. You know, and that's why in the meditation practice there are times when you really, you lose all sense of the form of the body. You know, when the there's just, this is just a metaphor, but you could say there are just sensations in space. That's all. That's what the actual experience is. Uh, so then to give a spatial dimension to the body is not, it's not really an issue. Because what you're calling body is a concept. You're, it's the sense of the form. And that, that is limited. The form is limited. Well, again, it's, they're inseparable, but distinct. Are the color and the form the same or different? They're actually distinct things, the color and the shape, but you can't separate them. Can you? Well, you can bend the bowl. Right, and then the, the no, that, then it changes. It's not that it, it's not that it always stays the same, but still the color. <laughs> they're not separable, but they are actually distinct aspects. So that's similar to the mind, to the knowing and the mind and the body. Okay, yeah, last question. When you say you see separation, separation of what? Okay, well, I think that I mean, it, it points to sort of an interesting aspect of the practice, which is often uh, not emphasized a lot, but extremely important. And that is to include the visual field in your practice.
practice of awareness. And so, really to be noting and noticing the experience of seeing. Because the separation is coming through seeing because of actually not being mindful in the moment that that's what's arising. Just as, a, as an exercise you can do, which I found tremendously illuminating. Of course, seeing is happening you know, all the time when, you're, when your eyes are open. But usually we're paying attention to the body movements or something more tangible. When you're in the dining room or you know, you're in the shoe room or whatever, where there are a lot of people around, Notice the difference, or take some time in that situation where you're noting seeing, seeing. Not, not, let the note be very soft, just as the reminder to be aware of seeing. Notice the difference in your experience when you do that and you don't do that. I was amazed to find how much of the time my, my consciousness went out through the eye door unnoticed and created all kinds of very subtle and not so subtle concepts which result in separation. Now, so much of the judging mind comes because we're not noticing that we're seeing. And it was just amazing to kind of have the mind settle back, (laughs) go back back through the eye door the other way. You know, and just really stay settled and and grounded and aware. And then there's just seeing arising in awareness the same way sounds do. And you find that same sense of what you call connectedness or inclusion or whatever. Do do you follow? I think we'll, we'll have more time this afternoon. At the end of the 345 sitting, we'll have another question period. It sometimes happens that some people are um, shy or are not quick and they don't get their hand up to get their questions asked. So I'd like to give this opportunity to those of you who um, maybe don't even really have a question but maybe have a topic that you'd like some information on who uh, you know may normally feel too shy to ask a question or whatever. So it's your opportunity. And if there's no questions, then we can just sit quietly.
The word is kalesa, and they what? Come as visitors. Right, right. Um, Klesa is the Pali word for, I think literally it's translated something like torment. And it's a condition that torments the mind. <clears throat> or as, I, <clears throat> as I've spoken about in the last couple of talks that I've given, it's conditions that obscure or obstruct or hinder our clear knowing. And the torments of the mind are sleepiness, restlessness, pride, jealousy, envy, greediness, all of the familiar hindrances or states of mind which we usually feel agitated and frustrated and uh, some kind of impatience with. That's like being tormented. And the conditions for their arising are not seen clearly. So that when we do not notice the pleasantness of an experience, then we will get attached or craving or um, stuck to it. The mind will get stuck in a way that torments us. We can't let go. Or if we don't notice the uh, unpleasantness of an experience, we may feel frustrated by it, tormented by frustration. We may feel uh, envious of something someone else has, or maybe we don't want them to have it, we want to have it. And these conditions give rise to these torments. And we feel caught or victimized sometimes by them. Well, the conditions have come together, the kalesa or torment has arisen in the mind, and now, thanks to our mindfulness, we can see it. Whereas, maybe before we practiced so intensely or even heard of the Dhamma, we didn't notice that our minds were tormented, even. So if you're noticing a lot of torments in your mind, good. That means your mindfulness is getting better. When the conditions for the arising of torments are not present, torments don't arise. When we see clearly the nature of arising or the present experience, we don't get attached to pleasant, pleasant or reactive in a pushing-away way to unpleasant mental or physical experience. We see clearly. There are many other conditions. Uh, you know, what it is, the object that we see, our prior mental state, 
etc., etc., but primarily it's the clarity of seeing or the deluded nature of seeing that Sharon spoke about last night that determines whether the mind is going to be tormented or whether there'll be a clasa present in the mind. Again, about places, how does merely seeing the pleasant or unpleasant nature of an experience prevent attachment or aversion? And secondly, how is not wanting places to be present different than aversion to them? Those are your two questions? A couple of talks ago, I talked about the ability to connect and to sustain your attention on your experience, whatever it is. So that's to attend to, to get to, and to actually see the nature of this experience. It's physical or mental, it's a sight, it's a sound, it's a thought, it's a feeling, or whatever. When we can actually be with the experience as it's happening, and I'll use the word see it, but it actually means to feel it. We can feel sights, we can feel sounds, we can feel thoughts, we can feel physical sensations, but to when we can be with it, to feel it, we may or we may not notice the pleasantness or the unpleasantness. In any event, if we are able to attend to that experience for as long as it lasts, we will see its impermanent nature. In the seeing of impermanence, or in the seeing of the deconstruction of an experience, in seeing through the conditional nature of any experience, we not by choice, not by will, but we see the actual impossibility of hanging on to it. And it's not a thought. This is not a thought. It's not something we have to reflect about. It's in the very clarity of seeing this experience, feeling this experience or that experience, pleasant or unpleasant. We realize in the moment of its deconstruction or in the moment of its dissolution, we can't be attached to it. It no longer exists. We can't be averse to it. It no longer exists. We can think about it. If we then arouse the thought of, oh, wasn't that a good cookie we had yesterday? I wonder if there's any more. Maybe they'll serve them for tea. Then we can get attached to that memory of that pleasantness, of that enjoyment, etc., etc. Yes. 
But if we can connect again to that thought or that memory or that re-experience in the mind of that pleasantness, sustain our attention on that thought, on that image of that cookie, on that feeling of, of pleasantness, enjoyment, and liking of it, if we can sustain our attention on that and see what happens to it, it will in time disappear, dissolve, pass away, deconstruct, however you understand that. At that point, we see again, it is not possible to hang on to what is not present. We can hang on to an image of it for as long as it's there, but if we're watching it with clarity, we cannot. So that's the kind of the uh, insightful mechanism for deconstruction of or non-attaching to pleasantness, non-aversing to unpleasantness. The difference between understanding that obstructions to the mind are really problematic, troublesome, and cause us unhappiness in the short and long run. The difference between that and disliking them and pushing them away when they're present is quite substantial. We can understand that, oh, attachment, restlessness, worry, agitation, etc., are obstructions to the mind. They cause us unhappiness. When they arise in relationship to or in reaction to an experience, if we say, oh, this is aversion, I don't like it, that's not particularly skillful. If, on the other hand, we recognize, oh, this is aversion, that recognition allows us or begins to permit us to accept it. Accepting meaning accepting the fact that it's there. And that means being patient, being tolerant, being present with, feeling that klesa, feeling that aversion or attachment or restlessness, whatever. We don't need to dislike that or ourself for its presence. Merely to see that it is present and if we, again, connect our attention to it, sustain our attention on it, we'll see that it doesn't last long. It may immediately rise again in, in the uh, reaction to the image of what we just experienced or what we are hoping to experience or whatever. And then we have to keep noticing, 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 noticing. And at some point, it will no longer be present. we have a long history of unconscious, now habitual reactions to familiar experience. You know, chocolate. Immediately attached or averse, depending on your particular flavor. But each time we come in contact with experience and that habitual, conditioned because we've trained ourselves to 
or mother and father and society and etc. etc. have trained us to respond, react in such a way. Each time you notice that reaction, it's like you chip the corner or chip the edge off of that, the strength of that unconscious habit. And in time, each note, that the strength of that habit wears away. And it no longer becomes such a potent force in the mind. And so we actually uh, see in the first time that something arises, or in the, the next time that arises, we see, oh, what a strong reaction we have to it. And after ten times, we see, well, we catch it a little bit quicker, and we're able to step back and let go. And after a hundred times, we're able to let go a little bit quicker. And after a hundred thousand times, the object appears in the mind or it, to one of the sense doors, and we see it come and go, and we don't react. But we see it clearly. We see it in the moment of its being there. Oh, and we may even remember, I used to really get angry at that behavior. And we just see it come. It's like, what? I don't react. With an unconscious relationship to it. We do react with clarity. We see it. We understand it. We see its impermanence. We see its nature to make us pretty uncomfortable or unsatisfied. And we see that we don't control it. It comes, it goes. So, when clases appear in the mind, it's like, a, I probably have said this before, it's like a shroud dropped over the head, which we can't see clearly what it is we're looking at. And each time we notice the color of that shroud, it's like poking a hole in it. Poking a little hole here, a little hole there. I see aversion, 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 irritation. In time, there are more holes than shroud. We begin to see more clearly. And eventually there's no shroud. We're looking through, or we're seeing through that obstruction, that, ob, that cloud in the mind not letting the mind disappear, not losing awareness of the object, but not being disturbed or clouded by that clasis. 